This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation, plus MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Mayor Brandon Johnson says that soon the city will have moved all migrants out of police stations and into temporary city-run shelters. Let's listen. We're actually down to only one police district um, that... Uh, still has migrants uh, sleeping in them. Uh, a month ago, we had as many as 4,000. We have decompressed um, 21 of the 22 uh, police districts. Uh, there is one left, and we're working to get that uh, resolved today. To get the latest on the city's efforts to provide support services for asylum seekers, we spoke with the city's deputy chief of staff, Christina Passione Zayas. I started off by asking Christina about the pace that new arrivals are being bused to the city and how that plays into the city's ordinance to fine and impound buses that skirt rules about where to drop off migrants. Here's Christina. It's actually still on an upward trend. Um, each week, the federal government sends us a estimate um, based on uh, individuals who indicate that the Chicago land area is their intended destination. And the last estimate that we got, last, it, it closes every Friday of each week. And what we received notice of is that we were in the about 2,400 mark, which is about 700 individuals more than the previous week. So while you know we've been making tremendous progress in transitioning away from police stations as our emergency staging uh, uh, areas, we actually have had an increase and in uptick in the number of buses that have been coming. Uh, last week was about 39 buses mm-hmm. compared to previous weeks that had been about 14 or 15 buses a week. So the newest of arrivals, uh, will they be sent to police stations or O'Hare? So what we're trying to do is that based on the uh, shelter bed availability, if we do have um, beds available for single adults or for family members, um, we after we have decompressed a police station, um, we will either send them to the police station if we don't have any additional beds um, or we will send them to uh, a shelter. So like, for example, if you've got in the police station, mainly single adults, but you have families that came on a bus and we happen to have family beds, then we send them to the family bed shelter. Um, or the opposite arrangement. But if we don't have beds available that match the composition of the individuals on the bus, then they will go to the police station. The administration won't be pursuing a winterized tent camp in Morgan Park because of a, quote, lack of urgency. What changed? 
Um, actually, all of it is on the table, you know, and, and the land assessment is still happening in, uh, at Morgan Park at 115th and Halstead. Um, and so we're still in the process of uh, evaluating if that is a viable um, space to stand up a base camp. Um, but so when you, when you say all of it is on the table, are you talking specifically about the Morgan Park camp or all of the, the potential? It's a location under consideration, um, but we have to go through, you know, the the full process of um, assessing the land, ensuring that infrastructure is ready uh, to be able to stand up a base camp. And all of this is incumbent upon the inflow of buses. Um, So it's one of those situations where because the the dynamics are fluid, we have to constantly keep our options open, uh, whether that's brick and mortar, whether that's base camp. But ultimately, our goal is to get folks on the path of self-sufficiency. And so that we're clear, will redevelopment of the, the site into Morgan Park Commons begin or, or will the land remain vacant until November 2024 in case the city does decide that it's going to be needed for a base camp? The the redevelopment of that land for the end use, that is always on the trajectory in the plan. Okay. Um, we just have an arrangement up until October 31st, 2024, if we need to be able to activate that land for a base camp. Now, the, the city sunk $1 million into the failed tent camp in Brighton Park. Can you just break down for us what that money went to? I'm actually not certain about that um, amount or that assessment because, uh, you know, what we spent uh, funds were on the environmental consultant that, you know, performed uh, the land assessment as well as the uh, the uh, operations that streets and sanitation, the Department of Transportation um, to, to assess the infrastructure. Uh, or I'm sorry, the electricity and the water management department to assess the infrastructure that I'm not sure where that source is coming from of a million dollars. That could be a combined what the state had spent with Garda World plus what the city had spent. Um, But according to our assessment, it wasn't it wasn't that total. What's your response to the assessment that it was a waste of taxpayer money? And, And how in the future would you prevent that from happening? I think what we were trying to do was, you know, respond to the urgency. At the end of September, um, we had confirmation. And as you all may recall, back in early September, we had said, you know, looking at the trends, we needed to act with urgency, expediency, and therefore employ some tactics that would assure that we wouldn't have people on the streets and that we would be able to um, get folks off of the floors of police stations and airports. And so we worked in in an effort in, to ensure that that was actually a plan that was viable. And so as we were moving along the road, uh, we discovered some, you know, kind of bumps in the road. The state was able to come in and work with us. And obviously we weren't able to move forward, uh, but that didn't deter us from our whole plan in terms of being able to get folks off of the police station floors and off of the airport floors. And so I think what it really speaks to is just the the fluidity of the situation and the lack of control that we have with respect to incoming buses. And so what we try to do is control what we can. And that's precisely why we had put out the ordinance around the buses so that we can have an organized and predictive process mm-hmm. so we can assure that the individuals that are traveling from the border are safe, especially with inclement weather on its way. 
with Brighton Park, Governor Pritzker was was very vocal about his concerns uh, with the site and and uh, made some very public comments and of course um, ultimately sort of shut that down. Do you feel that the public nature of that undermined the city's efforts? Um, I think we were just really focused on trying to solve the problems. I mean, obviously there was distinctions in terms of how we approached it and how we assessed the situation. Um, but we're not focused on that. We're really focused on trying to meet the moment and beyond. And so just because we had a difference in terms of how we um, approach this particular project does not mean that we won't continue to work together in partnership uh, to address this situation. Block Club Chicago reported this week that the city's paying above market value for shelters in the West Loop. Will you fully vet projects before spending that kind of money? So I think there's a lot more that is not being shared in, in terms of the cost analysis um, and, you know, the, the, the type of use. And so there is a thorough vetting process. There is a per bed rate, which is different um, than how those spaces are typically used. And so that's what's going to get you the differential. Um, but to your point, you know, as we look ahead into 2024, we are having some internal conversations about, you know, looking at each of the sites that we have, the cost per site per person, and how we can uh, economize but still meet the moment, stand in our values, mm-hmm. and provide, you know, a basic level of sheltering as well as uh, meals and the wraparound supports to get people on the path to self-sufficiency. Yeah. I'm also thinking about your, your comments a moment ago just about the importance of safety here uh, as, as the bottom line for, for migrants. And uh, Borderless Magazine recently published an investigation into the largest city-run migrant shelter in Pilsen, and it found, quote, inhumane conditions and alleges that the shelter you know, fails to meet basic standards for an emergency shelter. Uh, have you visited it? Yeah, so we have had, um, you know, many walkthroughs. We do uh, have our hands um, on the pulse of what's happening, you know, there is a grievance process if, if residents, um, you know, identify some areas in which are not meeting expectations. Those grievances are taken seriously and remedied. Um, but, you know, given this most recent article, we'll, you know, we, I, I just actually asked our uh, shelter manager to look into it and to provide a report back and uh, work particularly with the alder of that ward because he also has um, his eyes on it, and we want to assure that we are, you know, meeting the most basic needs and also responding to concerns. All eyes are also on this 60-day limit in, uh, in, in city-run shelters. The date is also quickly approaching next month. So I'm curious what's going to happen to people once the 60 days is up. Will they be returned to police stations, for instance? Yes, yeah, so I'm so glad you asked about that question because I think um, one thing that's important to distinguish with the 60-day resettlement plans is that they're being rolled out in cohorts. And those cohorts are based on length of stay as well as when you cross the border and eligibility for additional resources that could provide um, sort of a, a runway to self-sufficiency. So the very first um, notices were rolled out to a cohort of 50 individuals who had been in shelter since 2022. Um, significant amount of time 
obviously these were folks that we needed to understand what was taking so long for them to move on to self-sufficiency. And so therefore it allowed us to target and prioritize our resources to get them on that path to self-sufficiency. Yeah. I mean, it, well, is it to, to your point, is it realistic to, to think that migrants maybe just entering the shelter system that they will be able to find housing in, in 60 days? So generally speaking, our process and, you know, it has actually been able to, on average, it's about like 76 days from when you get a case manager to then um, when you are have signed a lease and are ready to move out. And so there are provisions in place that should the 60 days pass and you are not out of the shelter, you know, you might have some extenuating circumstances due to medical conditions. You might have a, a lease already signed and your move out date is after. There might be inclement weather. There's provisions in place to be able to look at this kind of holistically and then figure out what is the best course of action. But that sequencing, I want to just make sure that folks understand this. That was the first cohort. The second cohort were individuals who were in shelter from January 1 through July 31st. Um, and that, that cohort received their 60-day resettlement notices on December 4th. And then the last cohort, those who came in after uh, July, uh, I'm sorry, July uh, after July 31st, they will receive their notices in February. So technically, you have some people that have a four-month runway. And we have increased the case management, increased the housing assessment support, increased the screening for additional resources, plus coupling people with the TPS, the Temporary Protective Status, Employment Authorization Document Workshops, so that, again, we can tee people up to be on that path to self-sufficiency. Just a few seconds left with you, but uh, I'm curious. A lot's happening, as we've discussed, and and this can really have a toll on the people at the center here, migrants. What is the city doing to help them if, if they're dealing with trauma? to get the mental health support that they need? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. There's a couple of things. Um, You know, with the case management that the state is supporting, there there are those resources to make the referrals for mental and behavioral health services. We also have a partnership with um, with the county, specifically Cook County Health. Every individual that's in shelter has access to primary care and additional referrals for services and supports. Um, A lot of the organizations that are providing the uh, case management are community-based and um, have been able to make culturally congruent um, referrals so that, again, if people are experiencing distress, if people are experiencing trauma, we can connect them to the resources that are available. That's Christina Passione-Zayas, Deputy Chief of Staff for Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode. It was produced by Landon Jones and edited by Linnea Dominic and Max Lubers. For more conversations like this, check out our full catalog of interviews at wbez.org slash reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you so much for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.